Okay. Well, you know where we are. Book of Genesis. As we continue our walk through Genesis, we have a lot of material to cover tonight. A lot. Now, when I say a lot of material, what I mean is a lengthy biblical text. In fact, out of ten major sections in the book of Genesis, the section having to do with Noah from chapter 6 all the way through chapter 9 is the longest narrative of those ten. Okay? And uh, we need to read a good portion of it to kind of understand. I'm not going to try to do my typical points and things of that nature. We're going to walk through the text verse by verse so forth and hit the high spots in places. But uh, if you'll find... Verse 9 of Genesis chapter 6, we're going to look tonight at the subject matter, judgment and grace. Judgment and grace. Verse 9 of chapter 6, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to the cubic above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh In which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up it shall serve as food for you and for them Noah did this he did all that God commanded him Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. And seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. 
And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the deep, great deep, burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Sham and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in." The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark and God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, in the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountain of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. 
Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you, bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living thing that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark... It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Judgment and grace. 
want you to think with me a moment about the words out of Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27. Does anybody know what that verse says? It is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. You know, people think all the time that God will not judge sin. They think that because justice is delayed, that justice delayed means justice denied. And folks, nothing could be further from the truth. Peter in 2 Peter uses the example of Noah's flood to show that God will indeed bring judgment to the earth again. And then Jude, Jude also uses three separate occurrences to show that once again, one day God will judge. First, he uses those who died in the wilderness, who came with Moses out of Egypt, but did not make it into the promised land. And then secondly, he gives an example, the fallen angels, and how God has reserved those angels, demons, in chains until the day of judgment. And thirdly, he uses the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. All of these are three examples that God does indeed judge wickedness and unbelief. And so again, the point is that God reaches a limit on his patience and he will judge. You know, people all the time want to violate the doctrine of the simplicity of God the doctrine of the simplicity of God the simplicity of God says when you think of all of God's attributes that you've got to look at them as a unit you've got to look at them together you can't pull one out and just let that be your image of God what people want to do oftentimes is pull the attribute out of love, that God is love. Is that true? Yes, God is love. But they'll pull that attribute out and they want to push all the others aside and they want to look just at that one attribute and say, you know what, God's not going to judge anybody. After all, God is love. And so the doctrine of the simplicity of God or the doctrine of the unity of God means we've got to look at the full biblical picture of God in balance. Again, we find in Genesis 6 and 7 and 8 and beginning with 9, particularly the flood uh, uh, narrative in chapter 6 and 7, we, we find here that the day comes... And God finally executes his judgment. Now we see first of all that God does indeed know man's hearts. God pronounced Noah as being a righteous man. A righteous man who walked with God. Now that brings up the language of the garden. The garden of Eden before the fall. Remember what Adam and Eve did before the fall? What's said of Adam and Eve? 
They walked with God in the cool of the garden. So the language here is the same as that. So here is the world that has spiraled downward since Genesis chapter 3. But here is one man who has continued to walk with God. And God sees this. And God knows You know, it makes me think also of when Satan came before God to accuse Job. Remember what God said? God's testimony of Job. Not not man's testimony of Job or Job's testimony of himself. But God's testimony of Job to Satan was, Have you considered my servant Job? He is a righteous man in all of his ways. My point is that God knows our hearts. And so those who walk with God need to understand that regardless of how bad things might look upon the face of the earth, if you walk with God, God knows, God takes notice. Don't think for a moment that your way is hidden to the Lord. Now verse 11 of chapter 6 tells us that the whole earth was corrupt. Now Paul may have had this very phrase here in mind in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8 verse 21 Paul speaks of the corruption after the fall that had affected every single living thing in all of creation. In fact, Paul says in Romans 8.21 that all of creation is under the bondage of corruption. So Paul's probably thinking about this previous occasion right here. Now verse 12 says that all people had corrupted their way. All people had corrupted their way. Now here we find the doctrine of the depravity of man. The total depravity of man. Meaning that sin has affected every part of us. It has affected us entirely. Total depravity does not mean that every person is as bad as he or she could possibly be. It simply means that sin has affected every single part of us. Romans 3 declares the total depravity of man. Paul says there's none good. Not even one. And he emphasizes it the way he sets it up in the Greek. He's very emphatic when he says no one is righteous. No, not even as much as one person. All have sinned. Now notice what God singles out here concerning the corruption. What does he take special notice of that the corruption has led to? Violence. The whole earth has become violent. God created men to have peace. Peace with his environment. Peace with one another. And especially peace with God. When the peace with God is violated, it affects everything else about man. If man's not right with God, if he's not at peace with God, everything about his life is going to be wrong. 
His relationships are going to be affected. And that's what we see here. There's violence. What we see here is certainly not a picture of the world that God had created in Genesis 1 and 2 when God after each day saw what he had made and God said it is good and finally very good. Now verse, uh, again though before I, before I move on, I, I want you to see that God is clear to Noah about this. The violence, the corruption has impacted everybody. Everybody's involved. Now verse 13, you'll notice there that God tells Noah that he's going to bring a judgment on everyone that will put an end, that'll put an end to everyone. And all living creatures with breath in them that, that move upon the face of the ground. You know, God is holy. God is also good. He makes a distinction with Noah. Abraham, you'll recall, will later on ask in Genesis 18. Abraham will say, Will not the God of the universe do what is right? Surely the just God of the universe will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. And indeed, Abraham was exactly right. God will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. And so God notices Noah and God gives Noah a plan to follow so that he and his family and the animals that are to be preserved will not have to suffer the same fate as everyone else. God does right. God is a good God. God is a just God. And the plan here is to preserve Noah, not by having Noah escape, even having to be on the earth while the judgment is happening. But on the ark, Noah will go through the storm and he'll come out safely on the other side. He will be protected in the midst of the storm. And Noah has to be on the ark. God is making provision, but Noah has to obey God. And he has to be on the ark of safety. Now, the ark was was quite a piece of uh, engineering. Quite a piece of engineering. Uh, Listen to what the ESV says at the bottom in the study notes. It says, in modern measurements, the ark would have been around 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high, yielding a displacement of about 43,000 tons. The inside capacity would have been 1.4 million cubic feet. Feet with an approximate total deck area of 95,700 square feet. Quite a structure, quite a vessel. Now, immediately when you come to Noah's Ark narrative, people will ask the question Was this a worldwide flood? Personally, I think that is the only way to to properly interpret the text. 
Verse 17 is clear. Everything with breath in it that lives on land under heaven will die. Everything. That is everything that's not on the ark. A regional flood simply makes no sense whatsoever. If it were only regional, then the ark wouldn't have been necessary to begin with. All Noah would have had to have done was to simply relocate. He could have taken the animals and simply migrated a thousand miles away or whatever distance would have been the necessary distance to get out from from away from the flood. Plus, if it were regional, all that would have happened is that the waters would have spread out and dissipated. Because remember, we're told that the waters were high, high enough to cover even the highest mountains. The highest mountain peaks were even covered 15 cubics. A cubic is 18 inches. And so even the tallest mountain peaks on the face of the earth were almost 23 feet under water. What's my point? My point is this right here is language that communicates a worldwide flood. Not a regional flood, but a worldwide flood. Also, you've got to recognize that all over the world today on on the continents, there are fossils buried that have been uncovered that don't belong in those areas. In the Midwestern United States, for instance, there are fossils buried which are fossils of animals that would be out at sea. And yet they're in the Midwestern United States. That certainly communicates that the flood impacted all of the continents. There are land masses all over the globe. There are fossils all over the world that testify to something that certainly appears to have been global. And then you have God's straightforward words right here that indicate that the flood is going to be global. Now folks, that's good enough for me. I'm quite comfortable and confident in saying that the flood was global, not simply regional. Somebody says, but how, how did Noah go out and round up all of those animals? How did he do that? What's the answer? God did it. God brought the animals to him. Animals engage in migration. It's no stretch of the imagination whatsoever to see God putting within the animal kingdom uh, that necessity of migrating to go to where Noah was. Noah didn't have to go out and find them. They came to him. Notice that Noah was to take seven pairs of clean animals and a pair of the unclean. Why more clean animals? Well, because when they got off of the ark, what were, what were the clean animals going to be used for? Sacrifice and also 
for food. Exactly. And so more pairs of the clean animals were needed. And also I want you to notice it's male and female in the pairs. Why? Reproduction. God's put couples together of male and female, not just in the human family, but in the animal kingdom. Same-sex relationships are completely contrary to nature and contrary to God's will. God's command is male and female. And nature, even within nature, the ability to reproduce is a testimony to male and female. You can't get around that fact. Richard? Uh, Yes, after the fall, everything changed. And there's violence and bloodshed and corruption. Uh, We're told that Noah would have been building the ark for 120 years. At the beginning of chapter 6. When God says, my spirit's not always going to strive with man. He's got 120 years. Now there's two ways to interpret that. And really you can make allowances for both ways. Now I take it to mean that what God was saying to Noah is that in 120 years after God says what he says at the beginning of chapter 6, he's going to bring judgment. Judgment's going to fall. Noah's got 120 years to build that ark. In fact, when you think of that ark that I read the dimensions of it a moment ago, and you don't have power tools and trucks and cranes and things like that, you don't go out and build a vessel like that overnight. Okay? It would have taken a great deal of time. But you can also make allowance to say after the flood's over and man steps off the ark, man's life would only be 120 years at maximum. The fact that some people lived longer than that initially is not a problem because gradually lifespans did shrink down. The text doesn't say that instantly they would be limited to 120 years, only that it would happen, and largely that has happened. You never hear of anybody living beyond that. Maybe somebody in an Asian country living to maybe 116 years of age. Uh, I think the primary meaning was in 120 years, the flood's going to happen. Noah has 120 years to build the ark. But again, you can argue for lifespans also. Noah is working on this ark the whole time. And what does the New Testament tell us in 2 Peter that Noah was doing as he was building the ark? He was a preacher, a preacher of righteousness. Now, can you imagine the ridicule that Noah would have endured for that 120 years as he's building the ark? The mockery, the ridicule. 
Now, no doubt, Noah enlisted the help of his sons. It's even possible that Noah hired some of the surrounding men. Men who would eventually perish themselves in the flood. Now, think of how it was when Noah and his family got on the ark. The Bible says that God shut them in. God, no doubt, protected them from any people in the surrounding area trying to get on the ark in any way. I want you to think about something. A possibility. What had God placed at the entrance to the garden when he drove Adam and Eve out? Cherub. Cherubim. To guard it so nobody would enter. God could have done something like that around the ark. Uh... Also, because of the style of the ark itself, there was nothing to climb up on. The waters were rising, and if people would have run to the ark and panicked the way it was built, there's, there's no way that they could have boarded once God shut them in. Remember, the walls of the ark themselves were 45 feet tall, and there was no way in. So... Whether the inability because of the structure for people to get on, whether God guarded the way so nobody would get on, we don't know. We just know that people weren't able to get on. Now I want you to imagine as Noah and his family sat on that ark, all the animals with them, and the rains began. And then the fountains of the deep open. Geysers coming up, just underground geysers and you're sitting there and you're hearing all of that this is what you've been expecting this is what you've been waiting on and it started and and after a period of time you finally feel the ark beginning to lift up and and shift a little and float just think of your thoughts as all of this is happening Here is the promise of God of judgment actually beginning to come to pass. Folks, I want you to notice something too and remember something. The ark was like a gigantic coffin in shape, essentially. Here were all of these souls on board and all of these animals and death is happening all around. Here Noah and his family and the animals are on board and it looks like they're in a a huge coffin and when they get off the ark, when they emerge after being on the ark for that 370 days, it was like life from the dead in a sense. An image of resurrection. The ark is a picture to us of of who? Of of Jesus. And in Christ, what what do we experience? Life from the dead. The word pitch that's used in the text is the word for covering... The word for atonement. In Christ, our ark of safety, there is covering. There is atonement. I want you to listen to what Kent Hughes says about 
some of these parallels. Just be patient. It's, it's kind of a, a two-page quote I want to read from him. But he talks, first of all, about the structure. Just listen to some of the things he says here. The shape of the flood account indicates exacting care by Moses as to the content and literary style. In, in literary terms, it is a, a chiasmus. That is, the flood story divides itself into halves, with the second half being a mirror image of the first half, but in reverse order. The first half, which describes the beginning and the 150-day rise of the flood, is a kind of decreation. Decreation. While the second half, which gives the 150-day receding of the flood water and its end, is a kind of recreation. The center of this mirror-imaged structure is in the opening line of chapter 8 that says, But God remembered Noah. Alan Ross has provided this helpful diagram. Title, these are the generations of Noah. Noah's righteousness and Noah's sons. God resolves to destroy the corrupt race. Noah builds an ark according to God's instructions. The Lord commands the remnant to enter the ark. The flood begins. The flood prevails 150 days. And so in the, in the structure of a, a chiasmus, it goes down, and then the recreation part is going to build out with the transition verse in here. And each point in here is going to be here in reverse order. You understand what I'm saying? It's a literary device, and that's what's going on here. The, the, the transition statement, God remembers Noah. And then we begin the recreation side. The flood recedes 150 days. The mountains become visible. The earth dries. God commands the remnant to leave the ark. Noah builds an altar. The Lord resolves not to destroy mankind. So decreation and then recreation. Obviously, Moses has not given us a stream of consciousness rendition of the flood, but a highly nuanced historical and theological account. Think about Noah and Adam, he says. The decreation-recreation theme creates a deliberate parallel between Adam and Noah and between Adam's world and Noah's world. As Dr. Kenneth Matthews observes, Noah is depicted... As Adam revived. He's the sole survivor and successor to Adam. Both walk with God. Both are recipients of the promissory blessing. Both are caretakers of the lower creatures. Both father three sons. Both are workers of the soil. Both sin through the fruit of a tree. And both father a wicked son who's under a curse. 
Just as Adam's conduct accounted for the spiritual shape of the pre-flood world, so Noah's conduct accounts for the spiritual contours of the post-world flood. And then the comparisons with Moses, Noah and Moses. As Moses compiled the Genesis account and then the account of Exodus, he must have marveled at the parallels with his own life. The Hebrew word for ark was used in Genesis to refer to Noah's ship. The only other place that Hebrew word appears in the entire Old Testament is in Genesis, uh, uh, excuse me, Exodus chapter 2 when it's translated basket. So the ark here is translated Exodus basket. The basket into which Moses' mother placed him to drift down the aisle. Just as the great pitched covered ark preserved Noah and his family from a watery death, so the tiny pitched covered basket preserved Moses. Moses, the greatest man of the old covenant, experienced a salvation through an ark parallel to that which saved Noah, the man who found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Then later, as Moses opposed Pharaoh, he witnessed God's judgment by water when God unleashed the waters of the Red Sea, flooding destruction over the armies of Egypt. That was a microcosm of the original deliverance of Noah, and it likewise preserved a people to serve God. Lastly, Moses was given explicit instructions for building the tabernacle just as Noah had been given detailed instructions for the ark, even down to specifications regarding clean and unclean animals. These parallels suggest that Moses saw a comparison between the salvation in the ark of Noah during the 40 days and 40 nights of rain and the salvation in the presence of the tabernacle during the 40 years in the wilderness. Because the flood story is a carefully crafted, perfectly constructed, chiastic account featuring intentional parallels with the great saving figures of Adam, Noah, and Moses, we need to pay careful attention to its message. But we must understand that the message is not simply the flood, though it's one of the most gripping accounts of Scripture. Neither is the message simply one of judgment, although it does describe an awful judgment. Rather, the story focuses on Noah as the kind of man who is saved out of a lost world. The message is salvific. Here we find out why God saved Noah. Think of the theme here, the themes of decreation and recreation question why did Moses I mean why did Noah do all of this Hebrews 11 tells us right why did he do it faith 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 is demonstrated by our life it's more than just our words it's demonstrated by what we do. If God touches our lives, what we do with what we say we believe. Now I want you to notice that upon stepping off the ark, what did Noah immediately do? He built an altar and he sacrificed 
some of the clean animals and clean birds as he worshipped the Lord. And then God made his covenant with Noah in chapter 9. And in that covenant, God promised that never again would he destroy the earth by flood. But next time, 2 Peter 3 says it'll be by what? By fire, burning up the elements. Also as part of this Noadic covenant, God promised the enduring of the seasons. He also said that Noah and his descendants could eat meat as long as they didn't eat the meat with blood in it. And then you notice also in the covenant that God didn't just simply make an allowance for the death penalty. God actually commanded the death penalty. He didn't just say you can do this if you feel like it or not. He actually commanded the death penalty if somebody violently killed another person. And what's the reason that he gave for commanding the death penalty? Because of the image of God in man. And so to take another man's life is a strike against the image of God in that man. And then he gave the sign of the covenant, the rainbow. Now, interestingly enough, what was a bow a symbol of? A bow was a symbol of war and of death. What did a bow hanging up mean? It meant peace. God hung up his bow in the sky. What's God communicating in the rainbow? He's saying that His wrath has now been satisfied. He's starting over again with humanity in Noah and Noah's descendants. His wrath has been abated. He hangs up the bow, a symbol of making peace. Powerful image here. Some lessons just quickly and we'll close. I'm going to give you four. Lesson number one, God will only be patient for so long with sin before taking action. God will only be patient for so long with sin before taking action. Number two, God always preserves A remnant. God always preserves a remnant. Number three, the remnant must act in faith. And then lastly, and most importantly, God is a covenant-keeping God. God is a covenant-keeping Keeping God. Well, as I say, looking at three chapters, all we can do is hit the high points. Questions or comments? The remnant must act in faith. 
God will only be patient for so long with sin before taking action. God always preserves a remnant. The remnant must act in faith. And God is a covenant-keeping God. Lots of other lessons. Those are four chief ones that I see in this narrative. 